microphones, please. Thank you. Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. You, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Once more, our gracious Father, we come to you with a very specific petition, a request. And um, that is that you would simply teach us by your word. You have called us out of our homes, out of our normal way of living and breathing, out of the normal patterns of a week to come into this space, assembled together as a family of faith, in order that we might give to you what you are due. And so, Lord, may you receive from us that which you are due. Our words of adoration and our prayers of confession, our devoted mental energy, our tears of repentance, our reconciliation from brother to brother, sister to sister, where there is unreconciled wrongs. The offering of our bodies, as Paul says in Romans 12, as a living sacrifice. We present ourselves to you this morning. And then and only then, Lord, once we have wept over our sinfulness, confessed our need for your grace every day, thanked you for your abundant mercy, honored you for your glory in creation and in Christ and in his resurrection, and thanked you for the preservation of your word and of our own confession, then, Lord, then we come and we ask, Lord, help us now. Help us to understand, help us to see and hear for our sake, for your glory, and for the sake of the gospel. 
In Christ's name, we together pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not much of a poet. And by not much of a poet, I mean I don't write poetry. I'm not a poet, and the few times that I have tried for like a school assignment, I learned quite quickly that that this is not my gift. Um, And so when I find an excellent poem, I'm really drawn to it. Uh, I find myself kind of marveling at the craftsmanship, the wordsmithmanship, if that's a word. Wordsmithmanship, is that? Where's Sandy? Is that a word? Wordsmithery. My daughter, who is a wordsmith, uh, just told me a new word. Homeschool. Anyway. And so I found a great poem this week that speaks to the beauty of the unity of the saints. And since Paul transitions in chapter 14, verse 1, to this concern over the unity of the body of Christ, I thought it would be helpful for us to meditate on this poem by way of introduction. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink but what I drink. Look as I look, do as I do. Then and only then will I fellowship with you. Yes, it's a joke. Unfortunately, friends, this is too often what unity in the church is reduced to. Believe as I believe, I'm right, I'm always right, agree with me or be wrong, right? Why don't you tuck in your shirt like I do? Why don't you wear a tie like I do? Why don't you cut your hair like I do, right? Then and only then will I fellowship with you. Is that biblical unity? Yeah. Is that what Paul's talking about in Romans 14? No. Is unity important? Yeah. Yeah, there can be no doubt about the importance that God's word places on the unity of of his people. Um, Whether you're talking about New or Old Testament, in the Old Testament, Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. What's it like? Well, if you're following the reading plan, you would have just recently read about the very specific formula of spices and aromatics that are to be mixed with pure olive oil. That that, that olive oil then, uh, with all of those aromatics blended into it, a very unique com- composition only for the anointing of the holy things in the temple of God, that oil would then be sprinkled on the curtains and the furniture and on the priest and on his clothing such that most likely when you walked into that space, your nostrils would be immediately filled with the aromas of frankincense and myrrh and oils and boy, it would just be probably quite uh, an experience. 
Well, what's the unity of the saints like to the psalmist? It's like the oil, that precious oil anointed on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like that oil, it's sweet. It's, it's the way that smells have a way of, of sort of grabbing your attention. And it's the way that, like the way that smells have a tendency to, to transport you to another place in time. You remember something. My wife just said to me the other day, she said, it smells like, what'd you say? What'd you say? You don't remember. She's like, it smells like spring, or it smells like, the, oh, it smells like, she, she said, it smells like vacation in here. <laughs> and I went, what? What? <laughs> oh, yeah. Smells like vacation. That's, that's a candle scent, all right? Entrepreneurs, congratulations, all right? Vacation. Consult my wife. She'll give you the formula. Smells like vacation. No, aromas have a way of doing that, right? And you think about that oil anointed all over the priest, and you think about the curtains inside the tabernacle that were, that were embroidered with images of angels all in every direction. And you can imagine what it, been, what it would have been like for a priest to walk into the tabernacle and see the sights and smell the aromas. And what is it? It's, it's good, right? It's soothing, it's almost euphoric, right? The psalmist says the unity of the people of God is like that. It's almost euphoric. Isn't that wonderful? Not only that, but the psalmist says it's like, it's like dew on the mountains. And if you've ever spent much time in the mountains and you know those fresh, those crisp mornings, right? Where it's a little bit chilly, but you like it. It's chilly, but it feels good. You got a hot cup of coffee or a hot cup of tea. And you're sitting outside on the front porch of your in-law's place up in the mountains. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> this is getting really cathartic for me here right now. <laughs> and what's all over the hills and what's all over the lawn and all over the trees and dripping from the leaves, it's that morning dew. And you go, mmm. Smells like vacation. The psalmist says the unity of God's people is like that. It's like that, that feeling. It's precious. In fact, when you leave that sacred space or when you leave that mountain dew drenched area, what do you immediately want? You want to go back, right? You want to have it again, see it again, smell it again. As you're driving up to your vacation spot, as you're anticipating a trip coming up, you're thinking, mm, I can't wait for that experience. The psalmist says that's what the unity of the body of Christ is like. It's like that. Isn't that wild? There can be no doubt about the importance God's word places on the unity of his people not only in the Old Testament, but in the New. Famously, Jesus prayed in his, what's called his high priestly prayer, for he is the great high priest who makes intercession. He lives to make intercession between his people and God the Father. He prays, I do not only ask for these, that's his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us that they may all be one, 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. That's his prayer. As Jesus and the Father are one, as he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've met me, you've met the Father. Just as we are in one, I in you and you in me, may they all be in us as one. But that's not the last thing he says. Do you know what he says next? That would be enough, wouldn't it? To be an excellent prayer for his people. But the last phrase of that section where he's praying for our unity, both to one another and to him in the Father, is so that, okay, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Mm. If we take Jesus' words seriously then, the unity of the church is more than Jesus' petition of the Father. It is fundamental to the spread of the gospel. The propagation of the gospel of Christ is bound up, our Kent Hughes says. It is bound up for better or worse with the degree of unity we display to the world. For better or worse, the spread of the gospel is bound up in our unity. But of course, are we talking about the unity of that opening poem? Look as I look, do as I do, dress as I dress, or something else entirely? Well, Paul answers that question in detail, dealing with the unity in the church from Romans 14 verse 1 through 12 that we just read on to the end of the chapter and 13 verses into chapter 15. From 14.1 to 15.13. This is all about the unity of the church. So it's a big portion. And we'll take some time to work our way through it. We'll just get a, a taste of it this morning. We'll take 90 minutes or so and just get a little... What The headline though for us this morning... And it's, and it's a, 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 a foundational understanding as we build our way through these verses in the coming weeks. The headline is this, unity of strong and weak believers. Unity of strong and weak believers. In a healthy church, there will be young and old. And I mean chronologically, right? There'll be babies and there'll be those who are just a day away, right? And everything in between. There will be stoic and jovial. There will be introverts and extroverts, right? There'll be, most likely, in a healthy church, there'll be businessmen, white-collar day jobs with soft hands, right alongside day laborers with leather calloused hands, right? Everything in between. But along with that unique diversity of peoples, there will also be those who have young and underdeveloped faith and those who have grown in grace over decades of walking with the Lord, the weak and the strong. 
There is no shame in being among those who have a lot of growing to do. The weak, quote unquote. And there is no pride of self-accomplishment in those who are more mature or seasoned. If there is pride in your maturity, then you're probably not as mature as you think. (laughs) Otherwise, the pride would have been purged from you more and more every passing year. And so if there's no shame in being among the weaker and no pride in being among the stronger, then and only then can the church get on with the business of unity as described here in Romans 14 and 15. This is why this is the foundation. We cannot go on to step two, phase two, the next rung in the ladder of biblical unity in the church until we admit and embrace there will always be and has always been the weak in the faith and the strong in the faith. There's no shame and there's no pride. Once we grab onto that, no matter where we are on that spectrum, then we can get on with the business of really learning to be unified. Well, let's begin to unpack this together. Again, this is more of an introductory sermon to the subject, but let's consider this, if you're a note taker, number one, let's talk unity, purity, and diversity. Unity, purity, and diversity. Well, first, let's take them in order what unity is not. Unity is not homogeneity. Okay, that's that opening poem. Shall I read it again just for fun? Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink but what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do. Then and only then will I fellowship with you. It's funnier the second time, isn't it? I thought so. That's not, that's homogeneity, okay? That's everything looks and sounds exactly the same. Now, that's why when you go to the store and you buy homogenized milk, what they've done is they've biologically altered it so that the milk fats cannot separate from the cream, uh, where it used to be that the, the cream rises to the top when the milkman would drop your bottles off on the front porch, which I don't know of anyone who's ever actually lived this experience. Uh, is anyone in here old enough to have had a milkman put milk in your... Wow, look at that. Look at that. See? Young and old. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> No, but that's, but that's awesome, right? So you can, you can relate to this, especially the cream rises to the top. There's a separation, right? But now you have homogenized milk so that the fats and the creams, they cannot separate. It's all the same all the way through. Boring, right? That's the idea. Now, unity, biblical unity in the church is not homogeneity. Unity is not also come one, come all, anything goes, So it's not homogeneity, but it's also not laissez-faire, whatever will be, will be. Que sera, sera, YOLO, carpe diem. Are there any more? Did I say any of them wrong? Wordsmithery? Unity also is not come one, come all, anything goes. No, biblical unity of the church is highly dependent, listen, upon what we confess. This is critical. Biblical unity is about what we confess. 
First and foremost, Romans 10:9. If you believe with your mouth and excuse me, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth specifically that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So first and foremost, it's about what we confess concerning the person of Christ, who he is. But it's more than just that. It's in terms of who Christ is, but also who we are. We are totally unable to, con- to save ourselves. We are very, very sinful, and our very best will never achieve even the slightest progress toward being worthy enough to be in God's presence. Biblical unity is dependent upon what we confess in terms of who Christ is and who we are. This is the only good purpose behind something like a denomination, right? This is a Baptist church. We are confessional Baptists. It simply means we agree about certain confessions. We agree with a confession of faith regarding a person's need for salvation, how and why they are saved. And then as a secondary issue, the role of the sacraments in sanctification, right? Not that the taking of the Lord's Supper saves you, but its role in sanctification. So how a person is saved, who the person of Christ is, the role of the sacraments, this is what we confess. Now when you branch out beyond the very narrow discussion of confession, beyond denominations, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, you move beyond that and you just go out into the street, just go out into the world. You go to Walmart, like I do. I have five kids, we go to Walmart twice a day sometimes, three times a day. A few things happen when you have five kids, multiple times a day, okay? Uh, big families, ready? Uh, you empty the trash can a lot of times, multiple times a day. You run the dishwasher multiple times a day. You run the laundry multiple times, right? And you run to Walmart and you buy more food usually multiple times a day. No, when you, when you go out and branch out beyond just the narrow of denominational confessions and you just talk to the average individual concerning this question, What is required for a man to be at peace with God? What is required for a man to be at peace with God? Well, the answer that you get will certainly vary greatly. Um, To one, they would say, be a good person. To another, they would say, pledge allegiance to Allah, not God, but Allah. Uh, To another, they would say, um, abide by the tenets of the Mormon church. Abide by the tenets of the Jehovah's Witness Church. Uh, to another, they would say, there is no such thing as God. Get out of my face. Go away. I don't want to hear your religion. Right? These are but a few of the answers that you will get if you just begin to take a poll of people who would be willing to talk to you. Now here's the question, friends. Can we possibly be unified spiritually with those who have such confessions? We can't, can we? It's, it's, it's logically impossible, isn't it? To say we are spiritually, deeply unified with people who think wildly various things about the person of God and how a man or a woman is at peace with him. We couldn't possibly be unified. Why? 
Because unity is based on what we confess. So when Paul calls for the unity of the church, he is not talking about either of those two extremes. Neither the homogeneity, where everything is absolutely the same, legalistic, fundamental, nor the other extreme, where anything goes, we are all one. Unity, purity, and diversity. Let's talk purity. Romans is a fascinating book. Chapters 1 through 11 deal with the doctrines of the faith. You're talking about settled teaching. That's what the word doctrine just means. It's a settled and understood teaching of a place or a community that is then proliferated on to the next generation or to those who join the community. So 1 through 11 is all the doctrines of the faith of Christianity. You could almost have nothing else, and if you just had the book of Romans, you would really have a good sense of who Jesus is, what the church is, and the person and work of God. It's all about mostly concerning how a person is saved, how we are justified, which is to say declared legally innocent before the, the judge of all creation. We are justified by faith through grace, not by effort, not by work, not by jumping through hoops, doing jumping jacks, or anything else. It is a gift of God. It cannot be acquired with money, with service, with hard work. You receive it by faith, and you thank God for it. Believe and be saved. It's wonderful. But then in chapter 12, Paul turns the corner, and he says, okay, now, now that we understand exactly what we believe, who we are, who the person of God is, what's required for salvation, how salvation is acquired. Now, get this, friends, the response to grace is not sin. The response to grace is purity. This is the key, friends. Our purity doesn't earn God's grace. Our purity is the response to God's grace. There is no world in which we live that the logical response to the grace gift of God is to live in absolute, abject, habitual sin. It's logically inconsistent. The only logical response to the grace gift of God is purity. And so that's why in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul shifts from doctrines to practice. He says, now present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. This is your reasonable worship or your reasonable service. This is the only logical thing there is to do next. Is to do what? Present your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord, holy. The word holy means set apart, or the, the Bible uses the word consecrated a lot. I like that, uh, that song, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. I sang it a lot before I understood what it meant. Now I get it. Oh, consecrated. It just means set aside exclusively for the use of God's purposes. Take my life and let it be consecrated. Set aside exclusively for God's purposes. Last night we made dinner for the kids. My wife and I have a tradition. Many of you probably know it. Uh, Every Saturday night we order our favorite salad from Sports Page right here across the street. It's the steak salad. Yeah, (laughs) more amens for Sports Page than for the sermon so far. (laughs) I do keep track. 
we go to our, our steak salad, um, I take it home, I disassemble it, I chop everything up into little tiny bite-sized pieces because that's a first world problem. We don't like big salad pieces, you know, this kitten dressing all, you know what I mean? Anyway, um, but before we do that on Saturday nights, we feed the kids dinner. We usually read the Bible uh, and pray and send them to bed. And it's, for me, it's as early as humanly possible. I love you, go away, right? Then we'll get our salad, and, and, and it's, it, for my family, it's like the calm before the storm, right? Sunday mornings are intense. Here I am. I was playing a little bit of drums earlier. My wife runs the kids' ministry. We're here early. Dylan's the only one who beats me here most weeks, along with my kids. My, my daughters serve in the music ministry. My sons help carry things to the car and set up chairs half the time on a Sunday morning. And then it's like, all right, you better have your sermon ready, Gompers, because the service is starting whether your sermon is ready or not. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, woo! Saturday nights are like, all right, here we go. And the, you know, Rocky is playing in the background, you know? Here we go. So, so this is our, our little routine. All right, I, I got to get to the point because we don't have time for all this. So last night we made them pizza, and, and, and I, 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 can't, I can't believe I haven't, I'm having to confess this now, like publicly. We've, there were these cheesy breadsticks. So it's like a pizza and cheesy breadsticks. And it's my job to cut the pizza because I'm really anal about, you know, it being just right. The pieces are even. And, um, and so I can't watch someone cut a pizza all wrong. I go, just get out. Let me do it. Right. Okay. Anyway. And I, uh, I took about like half those cheesy breadsticks and I chopped them up and then I, was, I got a plate and I, I set them aside. Like, these don't exist. I hid them in the corner. Here you go, kids. Here's dinner, right? The pizza was garbage. The breadsticks were delicious. (laughs) But I feel feel like, almost like convicted now, you know? Like I lied to my kids. Like, yeah, here's here's dinner. Here's the breadsticks. Oh, the breadsticks are all gone. Oh, you guys should have eaten. Good night, you know? (laughs) And we tore them things up. Consecrated. Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. Set aside exclusively, exclusively for his purposes. Those are for me and Leslie. Exclusively. That's the word. In chapter 12 of of Romans, Paul, he calls on those who are unified around these confessions to now do so. He says in chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. That's opposite from, set aside. In verse 9, love genuinely. Let, let love be genuine. Not the phony baloney love of the world and those who, who do not know Christ. They can't love with pure love. You can love with pure love because pure love has been given and shown to you. You can give what you have received. And you can't until you have. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Verse 16, do not be wise in your own sight. Be humble. Verse 19, don't take revenge on those who wrong you. In fact, verse 20, feed your enemy, which is essentially to say you don't have any earthly enemies. You have only a mission field. You don't have enemies. You have a mission field. God is their judge. You bless your enemy when he strikes you, when he wrongs you, when he sues you, when he steals from you. You give him your 
You feed them. That's a, that's a bonkers way to live. Man, it's pure. It's pure. It's set apart. It's different. It's more concerned with God's purposes than your own. It's a pure way of living. What's all this instruction for? By application and submission to these and other instructions, the church then lives a pure and holy and peaceable life before God and man. John MacArthur says, the power of sin can devastate a church congregation. I love this. Listen, sin in the church can cripple its function, destroy its harmony, sap its strength, and negate its testimony. One day, your pastor will write stuff like that. Maybe. Sin in the church can cripple its function, destroy its harmony, sap its strength, and negate its testimony. Now, for those of you who have been in the church of Jesus Christ for a few decades, you've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that resonates with you, doesn't it, friend? With grieving hearts, you say, yeah, sin in the church can cripple its function. I watched it. Sin in the church does destroy its harmony. I felt it. Sin in the church does strap the, sap the strength of the church. Sin in the church certainly does negate the testimony of the church. Yeah. You've no doubt heard me say and pray, Lord, keep us at Hillcrest united and pure. You've heard me say that. Almost every day, Without fail, I pray that the Lord would keep us united as a family of faith, but also pure. Because our unity without purity is, it's worthless. You can't have one without the other and still be called the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are to be unified, we are to be pure. Unity, purity, and then finally diversity. The church is to be pure and unified and that purity and diversity is, is very intentionally diverse. The unity in purity is very intentionally diverse. The diversity of the church uh, from, from all languages and backgrounds was the, the goal from the beginning. Uh, the earliest covenants of God to man were through your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It was always about all the nations. And this diversity is celebrated in heaven in the eternal state. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, worshiping together, hand in hand. A great multitude from every nation, tribe, and language. Now, this is assumed. We shouldn't take it for granted, but it's assumed in the scriptures concerning the unity of the church. Now, the diversity to which Paul specifically speaks in Romans 14 is twofold. It's cultural diversity and maturity diversity. That's that opening phrase about weak and strong. Cultural diversity and maturity diversity. 
Look at verse 1 with me. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Well, friends, if there is weak, there must also be... Well, friends, if there's weak, there must also be... Yeah, right? Who, or else who is Paul talking to? If there is weak, there must be strong. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. The strong suddenly perk up and they go, oh, I have a duty, right? I have an obligation. I have a responsibility. I'm being addressed and commanded by the apostle. In the following verses, he describes who the weak are among two, the two primary cultural backgrounds of the early church. Specifically in Rome, you're talking about Jews who were converted to Christianity and non-Jews or Gentiles who were also converted to Christianity. And there are weak and strong among the Jews and there are weak and strong among the Gentiles. They come to Christ from very different backgrounds and each of them has a unique weakness and strength that Paul describes in these verses. Let's touch on them briefly as we consider, if you're taking notes, number two, background and conscience. Again, we're not going to have time to really get into this. You might, you might leave today with more questions and answers. That's okay. Background and conscience. We're going to divide this up four brief sort of sub-points or portions of this. We're going to talk about the Jewish problem, the Gentile problem, the Jewish freedom, and the Gentile freedom, okay? Jewish problem, Gentile problem, Jewish freedom, Gentile freedom. The Jewish problem is, is described in verses 2 and 5, and the Gentile problem is alluded to in the same verses. Verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Verse 5, one, day, one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That is his conscience. Because the conscience is, if you will, the boat, right? And the mind is the rudder. Next week, okay? (laughs) Next week. But each should be convinced in his own mind, which is to say, should live according to his conscience. Well, the Jewish problem there, one eats anything, the other eats only vegetables. The weak eats only vegetables, the strong eats anything. The weak is overly concerned, the strong enjoys his liberty. You see? Dietary laws and feast days. This is the Jewish problem. There were, there were some Jews who had really embraced Peter's experience in Acts chapter 10. You guys know what I'm talking about, Bible students? There's Peter, and he's, he's meditating. He has a vision of a, of a sheet coming down from heaven, and on that sheet were all kinds of things that the Jews were not allowed to eat. You can't eat these things, and yet here's a buffet, a picnic, all right? And God says, Peter, chow down. And Peter says, no, Lord. <laughs> which, of course, you're already, you're off to a bad start, right? No, Lord, I've never eaten anything that's unclean. And God says, don't you say what I have said is clean is unclean. How dare you, right? And what was the point? Well, it was a metaphor. 
the clean food and the clean diet, the unclean foods, the unclean diets. It was all about the gospel, right? Those people outside the Jewish faith, they're not unclean. Go share the gospel with them. They are the purpose in many ways that all nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed, Abraham, not just your descendants. And the same thing with feast days. You had people who had a hard time with, with, with embracing Peter's vision about what could be eaten and what could not be eaten, but also about certain days of the week. Certain, even now, people quarrel about what day we should have a church assembly. Should we have it on the Sabbath day? That's Saturday. The Sabbath rest of Saturday, or should we have it on Resurrection Sunday? Well, Jesus said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, right? Jesus was raised on the Sabbath day. He kind of made a new day, didn't he? And so what should we do? And the Jews in the first century were struggling with that. There's Christians today who are struggling with that. And so, of course, it makes sense that they were, prob- they were struggling with it then as well. So you got dietary laws and you have feast days. The Jewish problem was that they were holding on to the tenets of the past that were fulfilled in Christ. And they could now, they could enjoy. Have a pork chop, Peter. It's okay. You know? Barbecue is delicious. It's all right. The Gentiles had a different problem, but a problem they had. Their problem was, was everything that related to their former way of life. Everything that was associated with their former way of life. Well, what's the Jews' former way of life? The Jewish former way of life was very pure and holy. They would eat only certain things. They would have feasts. They would have festivals. They would live according to the commands of God. And they had a hard time shaking that. The Gentiles, they lived a certain way too. And Paul describes it in Romans 1 and other places. It was idol worship, idolatry. It was then the sexual immorality that comes along with it. There was almost, it was almost impossible in the ancient world to worship a false deity and also not participate in rampant sexual immorality. The two are essentially, it's, it's hand in glove, okay? You get one with the other. And so anything that was associated with that former way of life they, they had a hard time shaking it. And so, just like the feasts of, the, of Israel that we read about in the Old Testament, <clears throat> the, the feasts of idol worship involved um, uh, similar practices. There was animal sacrifice. Some, some of those bits of the animal would be burned. Some bits would be consumed by the priests. Some were enjoyed by all who were at the feast. This is just like the feast of Israel. To participate in the feast is to participate in the worship. To eat the food is to be joined together with the false deity and the others present to honor it, him or her. However, after the feast, also, the leftover cuts of meat would be sold in the market the next day. Uh, The way that it was phrased in one of my books was that the priests of the idol temple would then turn around and the back door was a butcher shop. And so whatever was left over from the festival the day before, they would then sell the next day in the marketplace for profit. Well, the Gentile problem then was this. What if I eat a cut of meat that was offered to an idol the day before? That's what I used to do. 
That was my old way of life. I used to eat the meat offered to the idols, and in doing so, I was worshiping that deity. I was being joined together, metaphorically speaking, with all the others who were there to worship that deity, and all then of the rampant sexual impropriety that would go along with it. What if I go to someone's house and they're serving a steak that was offered to an idol yesterday? Now what do I do? Am I going to be accursed? Am I worshiping that deity again? And in their minds, they were. And so that's a real problem. Well, again, Jewish problem, Gentile problem. You had some who were weak and others who were strong. Some who were weak, they couldn't handle it. They would offend their conscience. They wouldn't be able to live with themselves. Others who were like, that's all right. It's, it's no big deal. I'm good. Well, so that's the freedom. You have the Jewish problem, you got the Jewish freedom. Jesus said, I am Lord of the Sabbath in Matthew 12, 8. He made all days holy. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He gathered grain to eat so that he wouldn't starve on the Sabbath. He did so many things on the Sabbath day, almost seemingly to like to poke the bear of the Pharisees, constantly offending their sensibilities about what it meant to work on the Sabbath day. He made all days holy. Jesus declared all days clean. Mark 7, 19 says, do you not see whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? It enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it's expelled. And then in little parentheses, thus he declared all foods clean. Then you got Acts 10 and beyond, right? It's food. You just eat it. It's nothing. And so some Jews had, they had embraced this. They'd embraced the the Resurrection Sunday celebration. They had embraced all days are holy. They embraced all foods are acceptable. It's just food. You eat it, you get rid of it, you use it, it's energy. You know, you guys ever seen uh, Parks and Rec? It doesn't matter. Andy Dwyer, he's this goofy character. He goes, I just learned that food is fuel. And he goes, watch this. That was some Skittles. (laughs) 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 But that was it. That's just food is fuel. Who cares? Similarly, the Gentiles, they were offered a freedom, a freedom from this, this, this rampant, like this conscience that would weigh on them. What if I eat something that's offered to an idol? And so, uh, just to make sure that I don't possibly do so, I eat only vegetables, verse two. The weak person eats only vegetables. Why? For fear that I, I, I might, I might come across, I might eat something offered to an idol. I'll just have asparagus, right? In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Paul asks, what is an idol? What even is an idol? It's nothing, right? It's, it's like, that meat was offered to this music stand, right? And he goes, it's, it's nothing, right? Someone carved a piece of wood, and they said, here, piece of wood, have this, have this steak. It's nothing, it means nothing. It is nothing. It's completely superfluous. It's, it might as well not have existed. Just eat the steak, man. That idol isn't anything. Right? A deaf, blind, mute fabrication of sinful human beings could never overpower the strong hand of Jesus which holds you. So eat. That's the Gentile freedom. Jewish freedom, all days are holy. All foods are clean. Gentile freedom, what's an idol? And then even again, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 27, Paul says, don't ask. 
If you're worried about something that's offered to an idol, maybe that was offered to an idol, maybe I shouldn't eat it. He's like, don't ask. (laughs) I love that. Just eat. Gentile freedom. But friends, the point of this is not to examine ancient, historical, now irrelevant differences between the sensibilities of ancient people in the church 2,000 years ago and, and the sensibilities of our people today. The goal isn't to just talk about random facts about history. The goal is to understand the point, friends. In the church, there always have been and there always will be people with different backgrounds, different sensibilities, different things that stir and prick their conscience, different things that they're sensitive to. There almost certainly is someone here today who is a bit bothered by the drums because in your tradition, that's a bit too far, right? And I'm not making light of that. It's, it's a challenge. You know, it's, it's part of the reason why I actually love our church family because on any given Sunday morning, you'll see folks in t-shirts and folks in ties and everything in between, right? Who cares? It's just clothes. I wear my shirt tucked in and I present myself a certain way so as to not be a distraction and to have some sort of respect for the office that I hold as your pastor, Otherwise, who cares? It's just clothes. One of my earliest Sundays here at Hillcrest, um, I'm talking early, early days, like first month, we had communion on Sunday night. And, uh, and uh, Saturdays, or excuse me, Sunday mornings, I wear my khaki pants. And uh, basically, basically any other time, I wear jeans, right? Jeans and a nice shirt. Uh, this is my uniform, okay? Uh, but Sunday night, uh, we had communion, and I stood right here where these stairs are, and, um, and, and, I, and I held the elements as people came to the table, and I offered them to them. And I heard someone say under their breath, is he really serving communion in jeans? Is he serving communion in jeans? As they walked back with the, is he wearing jeans, serving communion? Like this really offended them. They didn't talk to me about it, but the truth is, number one, it's silly. They're just clothes. But also Paul says, hey, as for the one who is weak, welcome him. Be kind. Be sensible. Be sensitive. Be other-centered. It's nothing. But hey, why don't you, if you're there, maybe, maybe you try and help them out a little bit. But, verse 1, welcome him or accept him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So you don't say, hey, you know what? Let's all just get along. By the way, they're just jeans, dude. No, you say, hey, you know what? Sorry, I didn't, I certainly didn't mean to offend. Let's talk about it, you know? And so as to not create a, uh, another moment like that, maybe I'll wear some khaki pants next time. I know it's nothing, but they don't. They're bothered. And in the moment, I'm asking them to put their minds on the greatest event in human history, the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm asking them to reflect on the sin that they have unconfessed and offer it to the Lord so that they can participate in communion with a clear conscience. I'm asking them to search their heart with any division that they might have between another brother or sister in Christ. I'm I'm asking them to set their minds 
on that which rescued their souls from the pit of hell and damnation. The greatest gift that's ever been given, his mercy that's new every morning. And, and I so desperately just want to wear my jeans that I'm going to say, deal with it. No. No, I'm going to wear some khaki pants. I'm going to say, Please, here, have your mind set on the Lord. I can do that. That's what Paul's asking us. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. We can't get to number three. Number three is all about gospel issues. We'll do it another time, right? Number three is gospel issues, okay? Gospel issues. Paul, Paul interacts with different Christians different ways, right? To those who are perverting the gospel, he's, ooh, he's really bold. To those who are living in habitual sin and yet claiming Christ, he says, don't even associate. But to those who are just struggling with different backgrounds, with different things and different, different non-moral freedoms, okay, non-moral issues, he says, just welcome them. Don't quarrel over them. Don't quarrel over these things and serve one another. I want to close with John chapter 13. We read this last night. We're a few days behind in the family reading portion of our Bible reading plan. And so we just got to this last night, John 13. And I was, in preparation for this morning's sermon, I was struck by the humility that Jesus shows in John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. May we do the same, right? May we love to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, he rose up from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He assumed the position of the lowest of the servant class in society. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel that, he is, that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Like, this is backwards. And Jesus said to him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said, you will never wash my feet. <laughs> Peter... And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And he said, well, then my, my feet, not only my feet, then, but also do my hands and my head. And Jesus is like, shh. <laughs> it's okay, dummy. You'll get it one day. Just stop talking now. Jesus said, the one who is bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet. He is, and he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example 
that you should also do just as I have done to you. You see, friends? That's, that's the heart of biblical unity. It's being welcoming on non-moral issues. It's welcoming each other and embracing each other not to fight, not to be proven right, but ultimately it's serving each other. How many quibbles could be avoided if we were busy serving each other instead, right? It's to serve each other like Jesus served. It's one of the things that I'm so, um, so appreciative of, of your elders. Your elders that, that you elected, they stood on this platform and, and I, uh, as, as the pastor who was already here, the elder who was already in position, I, I put oil on their heads and we prayed over them and we all agreed as a church family, these men are uniquely called and gifted to serve and to teach and to lead. We submit to their authority as unto the Lord because they are the authority of the church that God has instituted We'll do as they say, right up until the scriptures are in conflict, but otherwise, they're in charge. We will trust them, we will obey them, we will follow their lead. And these men hold a high office. And you know what they do? They pick up trash. They fix broken doors. You know? They wear headsets and deal with security issues. They come to meetings in the middle of the weeks and sit down with me and pray over you. They do a lot of very unimpressive looking things. They just serve you like Jesus served. Nothing is beneath them. They're excellent servants. Well, they are your example. Right? Serve each other as they have served you. There is no request that is too menial. There is no task too unimportant. If the church is to be unified, we, we must rally around these ideas, friends. We've got to welcome each other. We've got to not fight with each other over silly things, and we've got to serve each other. Well, again, friends, this is just the beginning. This is but a a little brief taste of what is in store for us as we unpack Romans 14 and 15, 1 through 13. But for now, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word that teaches us. There is no element of life that is missing from your instruction. If we're just patient enough to wade through it and look at it carefully, you'll teach us. You'll show us who you are and who we are and our desperate need for you. And so by your grace, might you, might you make us whole. Might you make us like you. In Christ's name and for his sake, we pray all these things. Amen.